Welcome to another episode of The Southern Roost, a member of the Flyways and Highways Collective. If you are looking for the show about what's happening in the world of waterfowl, you are in the right place. From the sportsman's paradise capital of the world, I am your host, Aaron Head. Join with me in this endeavor is my co-host, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. Join us as we keep a pulse on the duck beat across our flyways. At Head Outdoors LLC, we aim for perfection in the CPR educational service and travel health industries. Whether you are a busy pharmacist, hustling nurse, healthcare provider of any sort, weary guide, or grinding fisherman, I make keeping up your license to practice easy to allow you more time to do what you love and to serve your business, clients, or patients by offering affordable CPR educational courses. Are you a hunter looking to go out of the country next year? Then go no further. Utilize our travel health service to get your vaccines and other medication recommendations started. Visit our website at headoutdoorsllc.square.site to see all the services we offer, or reach out to us directly at headoutdoorsllc at gmail.com to inquire about your next CPR certification or vaccine recommendations before your next excursion. So we are back. So uh, during that brief break, we did look up model ducks were 90 points was the scale 90 points that's back in 1970 they uh, read a found a paper online that basically said they were doing a trial run for the point system um uh, for certain species and it was listed as 90 points next to hen well, mallards you shoot a model duck and a green wing or a pintail or one other duck yep. if you shot a model duck wow so i thought that was interesting really enlightening basically it meant avoid any mallard like subspecies you, you could or any mallard you want mallard, to shoot a bunch of ducks down there you better yeah, yeah. you want to keep them yeah. Now I wonder how many of them old coon asses down in nineteen seventy paid attention to that. How many of them do it now? I don't know. Exactly. I, I think more, but I don't know. I bet the studies show, you know, I think they're they're looking at this um too that how many model ducks get harvested in teal season inadvertently and how that negatively affects their population. Could be. Could be. So, yeah. Could, could be, be a lot of questions yeah. out there. Whoop. But come on, we're gonna keep on moving down this list. So Ramsey, hardest duck to bag internationally or domestically, you think? Boy, that, that's a loaded question, Eric. I know. I'm going to tell you. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of these, a lot of folks are chasing the 41 or I count 58 in North America because I count subspecies. A lot of people are counting the 41, and I believe that of those 41, the fullest whistler is the most difficult North American species to bag because his distribution is so limited. I've seen them in Texas. I've seen them in Louisiana during teal season. They 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 go they go to other parts central Mexico or maybe even further south by the time the season starts and I know there's some resident populations in very limited parts of Florida and and so I think that may be one of the uh, the hardest species to bag. Some of the other species can be terribly uh, not really hard to bag, but you've got to put yourself somewhere in the world to find them. Point in case, bar-headed goose. I can remember many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I was on the phone with a gentleman, and he wanted to go to Argentina. And it's just something about the questions and, and the conversation that made me think he spoke from a uh, very informed opinion as, as regards high volume. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him, I said, sir, you know, he, he was he was uh, he was Pakistani, but he lived in America. Lives in America. He's still around. 
And he, uh, I said, what do, you, what do you know about high volume? It sounds like you've done this before. And he goes, well, I'm from Pakistan. And it's one of the, it's one of the most high volume places on earth, which I have found to be true. Hmm. And he began to describe to me, uh, back, now he was a, a minister of health under a, uh, a former president. They were all exiled way back, probably during the Reagan administration. And uh, which is how he ended up in the United States. But he, he told me a story about hunting bar-headed geese uh, on their wintering grounds, which happens to fall on the political boundary between Pakistan and India. Okay. And, uh, and I'm like, wow, that was an incredible story. Well, you can't really hunt. Now, there are parts of Pakistan you can hunt. That's probably not one of the areas you want to hunt. It's, it's just a, a, a different part. Of, of their country. Uh, and I don't think there's probably opportunity because this guy was obviously very well connected and described to me that uh, when they hunted, they had to coordinate with the Indian military who would sit distant under tent, you know, wearing their uniforms and pith helmets and drink their English tea and observe the packy hunter shooting barheaded geese high volume. And the only place I have found, I have seen feral, uh, which is to say, wild domestic versions of bar-headed geese in parts of the Netherlands. Never shot one there. But the only place I have found bar-headed geese is in certain parts of Mongolia. And and then come then comes, okay, so I'm all the way over Mongolia. Well now they're not flocked up. They're, you know, they're breeding. And uh those pairs are, are stripped together and they don't have want anything whatsoever to do with decoys or groups. You see the same thing in Mallard. Y'all, y'all guys know what I'm talking about, how earlier in the season, they're just pouring into to big decoy spread. But later in the year, mid-January on, those pairs of Mallards are very skittish, very wary. And part of that's got to do with the fact that it's they've been hunted extensively since opening day. But the other part's got to do with they're no longer going to bars and hanging out and socializing, trying to pick up each other. Right. They're courting. They're together. They're in that stage, that relationship that they want, they want to go watch HBO and eat some popcorn together. You know what I'm saying? They, they don't, they don't. And, and I see that with the bar headed goose too. And I think that was one of the, uh, one of the hardest species really to kind of get on. And when we found them over there, um, one client, just one, a, a, a lone bar headed goose happened to fly over one day and he, it, it was, you know, within his sphere of range. So he shot, but the rest of them we found were pairs that were feeding in these little isolated ponds had a real white clay in the bottom you got to stand it's real sandy around there real white clay mineral clay and uh, had a lot of fairy shrimp and we would just drive around and scout around and walk around and find these, these little hidden ponds and, and a lot of times we'd find a pair of bar-headed geese on it and uh one guy would try to get in position to swipe one of them and the rest of them would form a line you know uh, upwind and try to catch the retreat and we all got our bar-headed geese that way and that's just a very you're talking about the different methods of hunting. Well, you know, not everything decoys like a matter or a canvas back or a, a, a flock of green wings coming hammered in. There's a lot of birds don't do it at all. When we get down to South Africa, one of the coolest birds everybody wants to hunt nearly if you're a trophy collector or the pygmy geese. Now think about this. You're in this. When I say the word Africa habitat, what do you think of? You think of dry and arid and deserty, savannah, savannah. cacti. And, and, and thorn bushes and things of that nature. And it, it's a, that's a great description because it is. But those pygmy geese are adapted 
to prefer lily pads. Those little stubby beaks are for, are for nipping shoots and eating little seeds and whatnot. Uh, do you know how little ha- uh, lily pad habitat there is on, in South Africa? <laughs> Very little. And, and, and the times I've hunted them, uh, the, fir- the, the first time I ever shot them, somebody two hours from the lodge had found them on about a mile and a half oxbow lake covered with lily pads and said there were two pairs. And we ran into some, had to take a, a, a plan B route um, to get there. And we got there late, probably eight o'clock in the morning. We start walking around where this guy had seen them. And strangely enough, it's like walking along a lake bed in Mississippi in July, it, it, you know, coffee beans and uh, just hot as blazes. And of course, walking along the edge of a lily pad covered oxbow, we couldn't find them. Saw a lot of whistling ducks, couldn't find those. And so we, we, we started really kind of thinking maybe they had left and gone to the river. And we got up on a high vantage point, started glassing. You want to talk about looking for a needle in a haystack, trying to cover with three or four pair of binoculars, studying uh, trick by trick all those lily pads and trying to find four ducks about the size of a quarter pounder. Uh, and believe it or not, Jake Latondres was just doing some B-roll and found them. Well, now the question was, how in the hell are we going to get to them over there? They got them flew right to us and landed landed down the mountain and, and just landed in our lap practically. We had a little bit of scurrying and uh, tried to go downhill on that on that slippery scree and those rolling rocks without balling downhill like Charlie Brown getting tackled. But but we made it and managed to get them. And, and the other times we've hunted them, we go to – a couple of those such habitats and uh, smaller bodies of water. And we know they're there. And there's a, a young man in that village, little, little Zulu village. And he has fashioned a Robin Crusoe boat, literally taken sticks and, and twine and made him a frame and uh, got a couple of little boards across it for seats and then wrapped it with a blue tarp. And he, he pushes you individually, you get in a boat and he push poles through it and you've got to be alert because the lily pads are eyeball, eyeball high. You're just going through these lily pads and all of a sudden they, they jump up and explode and get one. So it's a, it's a very, uh, very difficult task. There's a duck named a whiteback duck and, and really kind of looks like a grebe. Got a great big round head and, and it rides low in the water like a grebe. Um, it's, it's the only species in its genus, and they say it's distantly related to a whistling duck, which when it gets up and starts to fly, if you can imagine a ruddy duck-sized animal flying with big, long legs trailing out past it, 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 its tail. But but when you hunt them, their, their defense mechanism is to dive underwater like a grebe. Like a grebe. And, and, and again, it's a spot and stalk strategy. And um, those are species that come to mind. Uh, some of my last unicorns uh were the bar-headed goose the um and the red-crested poacher and the red-crested poacher is uh is related to the uh, rosy bill poacher down in argentina but it exists primarily over in eurasia and we found them in azerbaijan but a lot of what we run into is just you know they're subject let it come off a real warm winter Chances are you're not going to see many redheads and bluebills in the deep south. Same same thing. Same thing would be uh, same thing would be this red crested poacher. So you now we've been over, made many trips over to Azerbaijan, uh, less than except the, the year of COVID. 
And uh, some years they're there, some years they're not. And and it's just so so that's a long way to go, and, and draw draw uh, draw up short because because they're not there. But what are you going to do? You know, I'm saying you just got to go. You don't know where you go. So so that's that's kind of the stuff you run into. I think when you when you really when you really commit yourself to trophy hunting, you know, and for a duck hunter, as compared to say a big game hunter, we're a different mindset. I mean, we're accustomed to pulling the trigger more. But when you when you crawl off and commit yourself, and, and I've got clients like this, I've got clients that will go all across the world. I've got a client going to Africa this year for eight days. Oh, he might, he might, uh, they might put him on a, a, a an afternoon hunt where he'll shoot some volume to pick up three or four species. But mostly what he's after is just checking the box, black duck, boom, pygmy goose, boom, cape tip. So I'm saying it's a whole different mindset. And and it reminds me of uh, I used to have a client that went lion hunting, wild lions in Tanzania, and he killed his lion on the last day of the third twenty-one day African safari. So sixty-three days into it, all that money and all that time, he finally killed his lion, and and that's really kind of sort of you know when you really commit yourself to species. I think you got to have that mindset. You know what I'm saying? Enjoy, enjoy your surroundings and enjoy the hunt for what it is and what it ain't. But you've just got to have that mindset um, for doing that right there. And and it's a whole different game, whole different game. And just going out and duck hunting and shooting some duck and going back to camp and drinking beer. It's a whole different game when you're when you're chasing chasing specific little turkeys. Right. And and Randy, not to get off topic too much with it, but I noticed on Instagram that you also Killed a Cape Buffalo, I believe. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I did. And that's a that's a that's a that's a story unto itself because now my, my brand is ducks and I'm a duck hunter and I uh, love yeah. the duck hunt, love the duck hunt far and wide. But um when I went to What's Mississippi State game like? Well, I'm gonna tell you, if I gotta lead into this, I gotta wind yeah, go up. I gotta wind up <laughs> just, just before I go start ahead. talking go about big game. Yeah. And uh and I'm I'm gonna preface it by saying this. I duck hunt plenty. I'm going to play I duck hunt 200 to 250 days a year, traveling for 300. And really and truly, as much as I love to shoot ducks and hunt ducks and, and all that 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 stuff, and uh, if, if I'm, if I'm going to go on a true vacation and have time to myself, and this is God's honest truth, I am not going to wear waders and shoot a shotgun. I, I'll go fishing. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do it. That, that's just uh, – if nothing else, I'm gonna binge watch reruns of Sopranos before I go before I go duck hunting for, on my on my on my off time. All and right. um, but um, when I went to Mississippi State University, uh, remember I told you getting started, I had duck hunted some, but I, I wouldn't identify it as a duck hunter. I was a deer hunter, and uh, particularly archery. And I got a job down in South Texas, and shot man. Shot antlers of deer like to hurt my mama. I wanted to be a deer biologist. I wanted to be a Dr. Kroll or Dr. Jacobson or Dr. Deer. That's really what I wanted to do was be a whitetail deer expert. Hook and bullet biology, whitetail deer management is why I went to Mississippi State University. And I shot so goddamn many deer down in um down in Texas pursuant to my job. Man, it was it was a it was a chore. It was a it was a chore. And for fun, I'd go out and pass you or jump shoot or whatever, a few ducks, quail, doves. And it really brought on my, my shotgun and origin. 
you know, I, I told you about going on the first duck hunts that turned into getducks.com and 20 years later, 25 years later, here we are. And so I went to scout. Um, I would shoot deer, you know, pursuing that go in the afternoon, shoot a few deer, just to load up the freezer. I, I, I do love venison. I'm not a trophy hunter at all. Uh, not at all. Am I a trophy whitetail deer hunter? Um, not to say I wouldn't shoot a big one, but I'm not going to hunt a big one. I'll shoot a big one because he stepped out before anything else did. That's just, the, that's just the long and the short. Somebody asked me one time, Ryan, they go, well, how can you go all the way around the world to shoot a bar-headed goose or a red-crested poacher or some duck nobody's heard of and say you're not a trophy hunter? I said, well, the first red-crested poacher you shoot, pretty pretty special. The next 100 are just exactly like the first. There's nothing really to it, right? And so uh, so I went to Africa back in, I don't know, eight or nine or 10, somewhere in that time frame to scout it out and, and put together a hunt. And there were some other – other men at camp, some sports from Texas, and they were going out in addition to bird hunting. They were going out and shooting a few big game animals. And I woke up one morning, just alarm hadn't gone off. I was staring at the sea. I said, you know, I am in Africa. I ought, to, I ought to go shoot some. I mean, I'm in Africa. So just go kill me some horns. And so we went out to go hunt. a uh, One afternoon, went to go shoot a wildebeest, black wildebeest. The guy was whistling, man, this part of Africa's got really good black wildebeest. And we saw him, and we were walking around looking for him. And stumbled upon a herd of little old bled buck. I, I boom, I shot him. And, and a little bit later, um, there, there's that big boy wildebeest, and I made a lousy shot. It just the sun was directly in my eyes. I was trying to hold the gun up on the sticks and shade the scope and squeeze the bar at thirty out six, real slow trigger. And right when it was too late to take. The trigger pull away right when it was just it was just it was no no backing off. I noticed he shifted his weight and I knew it was a poor shot because he was kind of quartering to me, and I could tell by the sound it was a poor shot. And off off they go stampeding. We're tracking them and going behind them, and I get up to that we get up to the herd and all of them are just kind of milling around except for him. The minute he sees us, he starts trotting, trying to gain some steam. You can tell he's hurting. He's gaining some steam. Well, I got to get the stick and I got to get the gun. I got to do this and, my, and the boy I'm with is ranging. Mr. Russell is 100 yards. 125 yards. Mr. Russell is 175 yards. By this time, he's gaining full steam, boy. He's starting to try. I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to get ready. 200 yards, Mr. Russell. 225 yards, Mr. Russell. Boom. Flipped him. Boom. He's dead. And you know that old boy said? He goes, well, I thought you couldn't shoot a rifle. And, man, I've been I've been saving quoting this. I had been saving this quote since the first time I saw Quigley down under. And I said, I didn't say I couldn't shoot a rifle. I just said I didn't have no use for one anymore. And uh, because when I was down in Texas, buddy, let me tell you what, we shot deer like to hurt their mamas. And, um, and and something happened. You know, I came back with those those horns, and it just it just kind of broke the ice a little bit. I started deer hunting a little bit more in my free time. And I went back to Africa on my 50th birthday. That's been a while ago. And my wife went. We found a heck of a deal. Plains game is really cheap. It's yeah. Really, it's really cheap. It's really cheap. It's under fence, but it's under big fence, and it's yeah. really cheap. I, I would say it's it's less than half the cost of a of a, a good quality whitetail deer hunt. Yep. And uh, so I went and had a wonderful time. It it was like going to Disneyland, you know. And uh, and 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 I cut my teeth shooting a rifle. I've been shooting the same three hundred Magnum since the late eighties, 
And uh, it was kind of a custom build. And, you know, the thing about Africa, I'm over there regularly now hunting. And the thing about it is uh, I've been back. We took my family back on a real cheap plains game hunt. And the thing about Africa is your bucket list gets deeper, not not shallower. You know, because you go and say, well, I want to shoot these three species. Well, I want to shoot four more. I want to shoot these. And, and the list just keeps getting longer and longer. And, and Cape Buffalo is such a charismatic animal. It's very expensive. Likewise, are sable. Very expensive animals. And, and uh, no matter the, 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 the South African, like Texas high fence, it, it don't matter. They're expensive. But I caught a break because during COVID, the inventory built up. Nobody's going to hunt and they're still making babies. And the price the, for, for a couple of years, the bottom fell out. And I just one day was coming back to the airport, heading to the gun room to get ready to leave the country and bumped into my, my outfitter and uh, my big game outfitter. I love him and his wife to death. And, um, and he said, Ramsey, call me when you get home. I've got a deal for you on a great buffalo. And he did. It's like really and truly, I shot a, a sable and a cape buffalo. And just because I was in Africa and got bored, I, I, I shot an animal in another one. Um, I shot something else called a, um, a bush buck for less, for half the price of what Cape Buffalo historically are. And so I, that would just, you know, and this year I won't do it. Uh, I won't hunt anything, but, but it's it just, I do, I do enjoy, I do enjoy seeing Africa. I do enjoy shooting rifles. I really do. What was that like? hunting dangerous game though and then i will leave it alone after that but i just I, from a from a standpoint of somebody the biggest game ever was no guy i can't imagine having to face a, an animal with two thousand pounds like that you know you know i i was uh i was 200 yards from mine we, we were we were making our way along and uh had seen the herd and were hustling to cut them off they were going basically from one thicket to another and they were aware we were there. And, and the big Dugga boy that ended up shooting couldn't – he's an old bull. He couldn't quite keep up. And just as luck of the draw, he managed to stop a little too long, and we, we got him hemmed up. And he's about 200 yards away. And when I shot him, he uh, – just the way – just the way it, it – his front end got two flat tires. You, you knew it was a good – you tell you tell by the sound it was a good hit. And I was actually shooting a borrowed uh, 375, which whew, I want one. Man, I, that's a flat <laughs> shooting, hard hitting gun without much recoil. And uh, and I laid it on him. And he and he and you know where you shoot an animal in Africa is not like you shoot a white tailed deer. And that was the most important advice I ever got all those years ago. It is go straight up the front leg, draw a line between between that that line of his front leg make that line, draw a line up to his back and shoot him dead center. Not a little bit low. Don't try to find like a white-tailed deer heart. Never shoot an animal in Africa head on. Never. Yeah. Uh, had nothing but problems doing that. And so I, it was a good shot. But but I can tell you this, and, and uh, the outfitters you meet over in Africa that have experience, they're, they're, uh, they got a good deal of respect for Buffalo. And and as, even though I saw him sinking as he was running about 50 yards, my, my outfitter was saying, shoot again, shoot again, shoot again, shoot again, shoot again, shoot again. I said, no, he's going down. And sure enough, he ran about 75 yards, got his knees up on him and fell over. And he said, shoot him again. I said, he don't need shooting. He said, shoot him again. So I shot him again. And but I don't think I needed to. But they're, they got they they really are serious about those buffaloes. Those things are, are 
they weigh a ton and they're they're merciless, man. They look at you like uh, one of the famous quotes. Uh, I think Hemingway said one time they they look at you like you owe them money. You know they they're they're the boss. They're fearless. They they don't fear nothing. I mean, you know, you've seen the video that they'll stand down a line. You know what I'm saying? Awesome. COVID really did change COVID everything. Really changed everything. From COVID, COVID changed a lot, and uh, for good and bad, mostly bad. But there were some, there were some upshots. You know, we do a king eider hunt, and that island that you're hunted on was closed for three years, almost four. And and it's unbelievable how uh, the harlequins and the king eiders were bounded. It, it, it's amazing. Uh, it, it it's really done good for them. Well, awesome. All right, Ramsey. So kind of we're gonna do some parting question for you here. So we really enjoy having you on this podcast for sure. So thank you so much for your time. So last question I got for you, is there any advice you give uh, to us duck hunters here in Louisiana, whether it be marsh or across the state, anything you got? What kind of advice? Just in general, we got, you know, we're looking forward to our trophy model ducks are going down and uh, for the first 15 days. And, um, just kind of we're there's a bleak outlook for the season among some hunters because we're pintails around the brink too. Our our beloved dogri have been going down. They dropped the bag limits on those scop too as well. So here in the general consensus, we're still all going to go be going hunting. We're still duck hunters, right? But we're all going to go. And what I'd say is keep a chin up, boys. Get 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 politically active. Quit looking for an enemy, but start start getting start committing yourself to uh, your time and your money to habitat. And don't be scared to travel. There's nothing we can do. I mean, there, we, we really and truly, um, we have got some amazing state and federal and, and, and university type research biologists out there. I mean, nobody on this world is even close, close to what we're doing here in North America. Don't have the hunting pressure that we got here. But nobody, everybody's a distant second from from the amount of brain power and and money we've got going at these ducks. But we got to admit, there's nothing we can do when New Year's Day in Jackson, Mississippi, is 82 degrees. You're not going; those, those big ducks are not going to come down. It's just not going to happen. Um, there is a. Uh, I'm I'm actually going next week. While I'm in Saskatoon to meet with a biologist, he's an endowed chair with Ducks Unlimited. He's done a lot of species research, and we're going to have a, a in-depth conversation about pintails. Um, according to him, I think he's got the data that justifies us shooting more drakes. Uh, it, it's just a matter of getting the federal government on board with it. Uh, one thing I've started doing as a Deep South hunter. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, man, it's easy to do in Louisiana, but it's interesting the number of people I've talked to down in, in Louisiana now, especially south of I-10. That 16-day blue wing teal season is their big duck season. Oh, Those little birds are coming. They're indifferent to cold weather. They're coming. They're migrating. Let that full moon and a three-mile-an-hour, let alone bigger north wind hit in, in August, September, they're coming. You know, and I, and I think that – I think that we've just got to start to love duck hunting for what it is and what it isn't and taking it for what it is and what it ain't and making the most of it. You know what I'm saying? It, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues plaguing, uh, plaguing waterfowl hunting worldwide and certainly in North America, not the least of which is hunting pressure. 
You know what I'm saying? It, it, there's a lot of hunting pressure. There, there's a lot of climate change. There's a lot of habitat change. And we talked about earlier, there's nothing we can do to that. Like your, like your professor told you, change is inevitable. We've got to, we've got to learn to roll with the punches. And, and that's, that's the only advice I really have. Hunt, hunt smarter and, uh, and, and do the very best you can with what you got. We all got to just stir what we got, right? For sure. And uh, so with my PTO with work and how it works, I can tell you we get 16 days to hunt teal. I'm, I'm only working four of them days. When I put my PTO yeah. requesting, that's that's a, our own little special thing we got going down here, and we absolutely love it and eat it up. There's an old time where I met one time in Louisiana. I'm not excuse me, down in Argentina. And uh, old timer. Now, I hadn't seen that man. I saw him last time for the first time since COVID last year down in Argentina. That was closed for two years. It's unbelievable how this old boy aged and just him too. Now, it made me realize just how old he was when I met him. Got to be up in his 80s. And um, and I'm, I, I think he's one of the people that's 80 years old, not 80 years young, if you know what I mean. And uh, come a thunderstorm, come a, come a downpour one morning, we get up. And I, I, I hate to say it, I will hunt in the rain because I'm going to hunt. I, I, I just, for the record, I'm going to tell you, I hate hunting in the rain. <laughs> I hate hunting in the rain. I hate I hate having to come in and get everything dry. I just don't enjoy it. But I do it. I'm gonna roll with the punches. But if it's 80 degrees or it's downpour, I'm going out. And uh, because we're down there in Argentina, everybody's just kind of lingering around, not in a hurry to go out and get because you're gonna you're gonna be soaking ass wet before you get to the truck and and to drive to the duck because it's raining so hard. And, and the old man comes in, he's suited up. He's ready to roll, and he's impatient. He's ready to go. And and the outfitter's like, well, are you sure you want to go out? I'm sure you want to wait it out. And he, and he said, we can go out this afternoon. And, and and that old man said, he said, he said, son, every hunt I skip is one less hunt I get to go on in my lifetime, and I'm too old to spare any. And I thought to myself, I got up and went and got my clothes on. I said, I'm too damn, I'm too damn old to spare any either. You know, I, I hunt so much. Uh, I was up in Canada last year, and an old time outfitter. Somebody said, you know, they was tell somebody was telling him, you know, well, he just he he left. He went Mississippi to Louisiana and Texas, and he's been here and here and here and here and here, and he's gonna go here and here. When are you gonna be home? A month, a month from now, I'm gonna be home. And the boy said, "What are you dying of cancer?" <laughs> I looked at him. I said, "Kinda." Tomorrow ain't a given. I'm going duck hunting. It's what I love to do. It's what it's what it's what I do. I'm going duck hunting. You know, as many times as I can. And and uh, we all want to shoot a lot of ducks. I get it. But, you know, even in the best of years, you don't shoot ducks every single day. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm not going, I'm not going to miss duck hunting. Yeah. Well, awesome. I really do appreciate it, Ramsey. Ryan, you got any final remarks? Ramsey, it's good to meet you, man. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you think about it. I wanted how many days this year where I shot one bird or less, right? One dog days. We always talk about that here. Uh, it just makes those good those limits sweeter. I, I can tell you now, if I fill a limit two or three times a year, I've had a good season. I don't kill a lot of ducks. And you, what are you doing it for at that point? You know, you're usually doing it just for the hope, a little bit of optimism in there, but I can't imagine what else I want to do on a November day, you know? For sure. I tell you, I tell you something interesting. I, I started off in wildlife management at Mississippi State University, never dreaming. I mean, honestly, I just wanted to wear a brown uniform, and make the world a better place, work for the federal government, be a biologist. That's really young and idealistic. 
you know, and people that get into that field, forestry and wildlife, young, you know, what you think you want to do when you're young is field work. That's, that's why you got into it. Get your hands dirty. Get your hands on things. And uh, then you get out and get a job and realize, you know, kind of tough to save for college and pay a mortgage and pay cars and, you know, making a bottom rung field work. It, it, it's, it's tough. So what you end up doing in a normal government career, you're starting to climb a rung up, a rung up, a rung up. Before you know it, you're stuck mostly behind a computer and not doing the fun stuff you dreamed of doing for a career. And uh, and that's where I'd gotten. And about midway through a federal government career, this opportunity came along to kick off uh, and get done. Kind of, kind of, kind of got to a point about midway through my career, even though it was part time, I realized. I needed to make a choice. I, I, I had to make a choice. Clients did not deserve my part-time attention. Mm-hmm. And and it just got to a point, if I was going to do something, I could not run this thing part-time. I had to make a choice, and I chose to do this, work for myself, deliver value to to the market, and, and do something maybe not a lot of people have done. So I, I, I made that plunge and fell off in this world. And uh, break, break. Back in the year 2020, I was at SEI convention. Boy, if I don't know if y'all remember February 2020, but Trump was in the Trump train was rolling, son. Mm-hmm. The, the the economy was through the roof, low unemployment, yada, 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 yada. And that was in a very, very busy and exciting convention. Everything was going good, and uh, the boot traffic was big. I would stand on my feet all day talking and have a good time. And a guy came in my booth, Dr. Lavretsky, it turns out. He asked me about African black ducks and yellow bill ducks. And uh and I flew right into a sales pitch and he said, No, 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 I'm I'm I need some genetics. I go, huh? And he proceeded to tell me all about the mattered type research he'd done uh here in America, North America, and, and worldwide. And said, you know, I really need some wild harvested. I said, Well, African black ducks are hard to come by. I, said, I know they are. But if you go back, I appreciate you getting one. I went back, uh COVID hit, break, break, two years later, ended up back over in Africa. He sent me some vials, and I started collecting African yellow-billed data. And, and to collect that data, I'm taking like uh, 10 pictures, seven or eight measurements, and a tissue sample. And it's not something I can do while I'm sitting there BSing. I, I, I can't, I, I've, got to, I've got to be alone and focus, get this method down. I may have 20 or 30 ducks processed. And... Uh, Details matter and, and, and attention matters. And, and, I, and I managed that year to shoot a single black duck, black. the first wild harvested black duck he'd ever killed. And I, I went back last year, and he sent me about 80 or 90 vials, and I filled them all up to include four more black ducks. And, and he, he said, my Lord, you didn't have to get them all. I said, well, you shouldn't have sent them all if you didn't want them all. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, what's the point? And, uh, and a lot of... A lot of cool research is starting to come out of that. A lot of genetics research, which I can't read a genetic paper. I'm not a geneticist. But but how a lot, you know, when you start looking at a lot of these uh, captive, uh, the, the, these old world genetics and mallards, the, these farm ducks, so to speak, uh, game farm birds, or you start looking at wow and, and what's going on with the the uh, the populations of mallards that are that are heavy to the the, the 
game farm genetic versus the wild genetic. When you start looking at all this different stuff around the world, it, it's really it's really brought a little bit of satisfaction to me to be able to start participating in this. And so uh, they're even building a – this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. It's based on those yellow-billed ducks, which – you know, even a even a model duck, even a Mexican duck, which looks like a model duck, you can you can pretty much pick the drake if you've seen enough of them, just because of the size of them. If the sun shines right, you can you can see the subtle differences. And okay, that's the drake I'm gonna go for. But the yellow bill duck, yellow bill duck, they're not that. They're very uh, very very. Uh, they they look exactly alike. That's what I'm trying to say. One of them had a penis, the other one doesn't. But you got to look under the tail to tell that. And 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 from that, they're building uh, an artificial intelligence app that right now in beta beta version will will uh, you can hold up to a mallard or a model duck or a Mexican duck or an African yellow bill, any of these mallard like species, and it will age and sex and species it for you. And in time, they're hoping in, in the upcoming decade, you'll have an app on your phone. I'll have an app on mine. Everybody will have an app. You better hold up to any duck in the world. And, and, you know, it's funny how everything, life just kind of runs a full circle, and I'm finding a tremendous amount of uh, satisfaction in being able to participate in this process through something we built, like GetDucks.com. The next, the next item, how that's evolved, is he said, you know, what about Pacific Black Ducks down in Australia? And just so happens I'm going in November because – the anti-hunters, I, I predicted five or six years ago when I went, I predicted that it's just not a, it's a matter of when, not if, they close the season. The anti-hunters are rampant, mm. ignorant, rampant. And by this, by this, I mean, you know, we all know that our license sales and our stamp sales and, and everything we do are running state and federal budgets, right? We, uh State yes, DNR right. to run off of license sales and, and, and state stamp sales and the federal duck stamp has generated over a billion dollars in habitat conservation since its inception. Well, not not in Australia where they care so much about ducks. Those, those damn politicians throw the, throw the hunt license sales in a general budget so they can go waste it like politicians are apt to do, right? Yep. But they're picking to shut that season down. So I said, well, I'm going back. There's two species over there I haven't ever hunted and I better go. So this November, I'm going to shoot magpie geese this january i'm going back to shoot cape barren geese and while we're over there lavrecki said hey i'd like some black duck genetic from uh, pacific black duck i said i can get it i said but dr rescue if uh if they shut that season down there won't be any way to collect any of the species at that point. If I'm going to go that far and we're going to hunt these species, I'll bring you back magpie geese. I'll bring you back Pacific black duck. But what about, what about just collecting all the data? Let's get the, the chestnut till, the gray till, uh, the main duck. Let, let's get it all while we can. Cause they've already, they've already removed two species, not, not for scientific, but just to almost punitatively because the, uh, the hunters loved the white eyed duck, which they call hardhead and the Australasian shoveler. That, that, that's the first two species the anti took off to discourage the hunters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, why don't we collect all that we can? And you can archive it for posterity. It's just taking on a real passion. Of me, and, I, and I'm starting to see since COVID, especially, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, the world was big. There was a lot of world left to explore. 
I've still got a few areas I want to explore. But what I'm seeing is, as I'm seeing slowly but surely, it began to be dismantled. Australia, New Zealand's got their own set of worries in terms of waterfowl because it's going to creep right over that little hop over to New Zealand. Argentina, of all places, Argentina. Do you know they tried to shut the season down, threatened to shut the season down last year? Not the federal government, not the provincial government, the outfitters, some of the outfitters dug into their front pockets and went and surveyed ducks. Now, they had to have a government representative in the truck with them to make sure they weren't lying. And then, and then all the data went to a government agency. And just in the little state of the little province of Buenos Aires, they had, had over 15 million ducks counted after the season. Wow. Relative to the United, uh, the the North American population of ducks, that's a bunch of ducks. But they ain't got no justification to shut it down this year. So I'm saying, so so the world is getting smaller, and and I, I'm I'm starting to find. Uh, I love the duck hunt. I love what we've managed to accomplish. I, I love, you know, we had to interrupt this this podcast. So I could jump on a Zoom meeting with clients uh, as our clients are leaving to go places. We like to meet with them, uh, and they understand. That after this meeting, ask me anything. We're happy to answer your question. But but at any time before, during, after you hunt, hey, if you got any problems, call me. That's what we're here for. And we're, we're we hold the hold the hand of a client all the way through the process. But but I just I, I really struggle, and, and uh, I'm becoming aware. If you can believe this, you know, talking about Louisiana, talking about the United States, we've got our own sets of problems here. That that I think that we Americans that are so used to unbridled freedom, like we are truly blessed with we deceive ourselves in thinking that we don't have our own set of problems and we do you know right now there are a lot of groups working behind the scenes to sever hunting related funding from wildlife management think about it. let that sink in what i just said because right now we've got state and federal agencies and universities working like nobody else in the world to preserve what we've got yet. And it's all being funded by me and you. And there are, there are avid people right now that that are are trying to separate that. What's going to happen if, if they, if they disassociate the funding that's going into wildlife conservation, I can tell you what's going to happen. We're going to be playing golf. All of us. Cause there ain't, there ain't nothing else to do. Part, that's my part in thoughts. We, we, I, I just think that no matter who we are and what we do and what, what walk of life, whether it's volunteering for banding, uh, how Aaron and I met, or uh, somehow becoming politically active. I hate politics. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, it, it, it's gotten to a point we have got to become uh, political of sorts or we're going to lose it. It's being, it's, being, it's being taken away from us. We just don't see it. For sure. Ramsey, I can't speak it better myself. People at uh, here in Louisiana, you know, my parting thoughts is get outside, get you over some decoys. And even on those one duck days, it's going to be hard. Louisiana waterfowlers, you know, we got our dogrees have already lightened the season. They're lightening our model ducks. Who knows what's going to happen with pintails? Hopefully there's some scientists that are fighting for us on the back end. But it all starts with that first license purchase. It all starts with all those gear you buy from your mom and pop shops, et cetera. It all goes back into kind of fund this whole wheel that we love to churn. 
And uh, if we don't fight for ourselves, no one's going to fight for us on our behalf. There's a lot more people out there against us that are for us. So with that note, I think we uh, will wrap it up here. So Ramsey, again, I really do appreciate you coming out and talking with us tonight. And I hope to see you again sometime in the future for sure, either banding or maybe out in the field or maybe over some Mexico trips. I love going to Mexico. <laughs> well, come on. Come on down, Aaron. And uh, Ryan, thank you all for having me here, folks. Uh, check us out on Instagram at Ramsey Russell Get Ducks, getducks.com. We'll keep you entertained for a while. We have our own podcast, Duck Season Somewhere. The next time I see Aaron and Ryan at a banding committee, I'm going to get them on my podcast to talk. That sounds like a plan. Looking forward to it. All right, signing off, y'all. Y'all have a great evening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Southern Roost, the podcast show for the Flyways and Highways Collective. Connect with us by searching Flyways and Highways on Instagram or Facebook. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review on wherever you get your podcast from. It really does make a difference. Tell a friend about our show. Even better, bring someone new into our beloved duck culture. Till next time, this is The Southern Roost, signing off.